You're listening to Backstage Pass with Alford Media. Your behind-the-scenes look inside event tech and what it takes to turn visions into reality. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Backstage Pass by Alford Media. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. When we look at our episode catalog so far, we've explored plenty of topics here in the domestic continental United States, looking at trends, technology, but AV is obviously an international industry, and though it inspires collaboration and some great sightseeing, coordinating an event overseas has plenty of complexities, some that can trip up even the most seasoned AV veteran. So I'd like to welcome Eric Hegstrom, Senior Project Manager for Alford Media, to give his perspective and best practices for staging an international event. Event. Eric, great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing today? Great to be here. Thanks, Daniel. So when I was doing a little background research on you, I found your LinkedIn and I was just definitely blown away by that profile picture. Gotta love the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the curly flow. You had the nice thin shades. Do you do you see yourself as sort of a, an image setter for the industry? Yeah, no. In, in some ways, <laughs> I think that particular photo, I was just finally relaxing and yeah. sitting down and having a cigar, you know, <laughs> which, which I do enjoy. We all deserve. We all deserve Absolutely. the relaxation. I feel that. So I'm glad to have you here giving your insight on basically adapting to and really flourishing in an international environment with an AV show or just an event in general. So let's start by just defining what you mean by an event. What is an event to you and to Alford Media? Well, a show it takes many, many forms. The way I look at it uh, is a little bit unique to me. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side was an obstetrician, and he made a career out of bringing children and babies into the world. And I find that a show is really not that, not that different. Uh, rather than having two people with their own genetic material that comes together, we have a neural DNA group that puts together a very complex, uh, detailed uh, design. And then after that, we wind up getting into kind of a gestation period where you kind of get all the materials, logistics, things come together again. Sure. And eventually leads to the truck at the loading dock where it opens up, which is very, very much like giving birth. Right. And as that equipment comes in, you start to see it quickly set up. And, and, and all of the things that you designed in your, in your genetic map there, you start to see coming to life as the pieces come together. Then, then you reach that one point where all of a sudden it opens its eyes, the video systems come online, the cameras, the LED, and then one of my favorites is when the audio team finally lets you hear its voice for the first time. Yeah. And every room is unique, the timbre, the acoustics in there, so every show has a very unique voice, just like a child. Yeah. So as this child comes in, uh, it starts to grow, and through the rehearsaling process is very similar to a child in school. So as we rehearse, the child grows and gets better and better. Now, occasionally, just like children, it might take a crap on you. <laughs> there are times where it might projectile vomit all over, right. but like children, the way you deal with it we is come you prepared. clean it up, yep. you comfort it, <laughs> and you do it. And then eventually, unfortunately, it comes to a conclusion. We only ever get to hold this child for about three days, maybe a week. On the rare occasion, a month, maybe they're cycling many clients through, and then it all starts over again. But I have learned one bright spot there is the fact that there's a lot of pregnant mothers out there. Yeah. So the whole process starts over again. So yeah. that's, that's really the difference in, in you know going to work and having a passion in a career. Right. So that's what a show is to us. Well, you know, if you're treating a show like your baby, then it's that's in right. good hands. That's right. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I know that Alford Media 
at least in the scope of an event, you really try to brand yourselves and your culture um, in just a really obvious way. Mm-hmm. Um, you're known as the burgundy guys. You know, burgundy is your color, and but more than a color, it's actually kind of been ingrained as part of your culture, especially when you're at an event. Tell me a little bit about the burgundy, right, and, and what that means to Alfred Media. Well, burgundy to us really is is a way of life. Yeah. It's just the way you, you treat people. It's a very altruistic uh, uh, way of conducting yourselves and uh, taking great care of both external and internal customers. And just, you know, the, the, the people that, that we work with, they're career people. It's not that they're doing a job. This is a vocation and a career that they've chosen. They're family people. Uh, and, and that's the way that we treat each other, you know, uh, and it's just part of that is, is just what we call Burgundy. It's just simple. I love that. So let's get into the international event. Um, you know, obviously the Alford Media team is full of seasoned vets for the AV industry. So you've had your fair share of international events, but often the clients you work with who are probably domestic to start with, Sometimes they've never experienced that international event, and then now you're partnered with them to help kind of carry them to that international event and make sure that they have an outstanding AV experience. Tell me about that transition from taking a domestic client and giving them an international show experience. What are some of the main challenges or just... I guess, what are the feels like there, right? How does it challenge Alford, and um, how do you approach that? Well, there are definitely big differences, Daniel. Um, I like to look at it like as if you're an Uber driver, (laughs) and you're going to take your client for a ride in the car. In the United States, uh, our roads, as my dear friend in Canada, Luke, always tells me, are just really great. They're nice and smooth. And, and the customer is very familiar with the surroundings and that ride. So when you wind up going to the overseas, there are some places there that the roads are actually better. Hmm. But there's a lot of historical places where a lot of the clients want to go that have cobblestone roads. And there's some places where some clients want to go that there aren't roads at all. Right. So I, I kind of look at it like we have to become the shock absorbers. And we have to figure out how to make sure that they have the same experience domestically as they do internationally. And so we kind of, you know, kind of do that. Uh, some, of the, some, of the, some of the big differences are um, just, the, just the units and values that we work in. Here in the States, we're kind of in an imperial world with feet and inches. Almost everywhere else in the world is, is metric. So you have to take that into careful consideration when you're, when you're designing a shows for overseas because at the end of the day, when, you, when you're working with teams around the world, the secret is empowerment. Right. You want to empower them to do the job that you need them to do for you. So, you know, so, so, so some of those design elements that come into play, you have to key. Uh, a, a composer writing a symphony. He will write typically in a concert pitch where everything's in his world, everything's good. But before he passes the music out to the musicians to play, he has to transpose for the various instruments to make sure that the E-flat clarinet has their part that they can play along in the symphony that you're creating. And it's the same thing in, in, in the world of design and CAD, uh, a couple of key things to do. When you're working in an international environment, the most important thing to do is to design your show in CAD and do it in full 3D, mm-hmm. all 3D dimensions. You create this little model that can then become tangible that they can hold in their hand and see. And then when you do it, you wind up doing your layouts uh, afterwards. And for the CAD guys that are out there, uh, there's many ways to do many things. But the layout is kind of like a giant 
poster board and you get to pull these little windows to your model that you've created and that's the the paper that you wind up handing off to these people Mm -hmm. so while in CAD when you put that particular viewport in there you have to make a decision on what what type of unit that's going to be and you can only pick one right so the way that I always approach the international projects is that I will create my layouts in an imperial world for my own technicians that travel but then I will make a redundant set of layouts that's scaled to a 1 to 100 metric scale so that at the end of the day, when you're loading that show in and you hand a drawing off to just a stagehand, he can reach in his tool bag and pull out a scale ruler that actually works. And within CAD, there's an easy way to do dimensioning where you start pulling lines where you can have it show both units. I caution you not to do that. It's the, it's the shortcut. It's the easy way to do it. But again, you can only have one scale on any one viewport, yeah. and the tools in that guy's bag are not going to work. So the whole key here is, is to get everyone empowered to do the best they can do. So that's some of the differences there uh, you know, yeah. from the international side. Yeah, I mean, uh, back to just the basic units. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if even NASA can sometimes exactly. mess that up, I mean, you've got to be on point with those little conversions. They, uh, they can make or break the most basic parts of a show. Exactly. Yeah. And then when, when you wind up handing, handing it off, uh, you know, the way that it would work is that typically there are, there are professionals around the world, such as we are, and you're going to wind up partnering with them for equipment for, for various things. And, and the way I, I kind of look at it is um, if you were to go to China and you walk up to a professional baseball player in China and you can't speak a, le- a lick of Chinese. Right. If you've created a baseball and you can simply hand that baseball to that player and point him toward the mound over there, the language barrier goes away. Right. Because he's a seasoned professional that understands what's going on, and you can mitigate that whole language situation if you team up with the right vendor and the right partner. Right. Well, what's great is AV sort of has a language of its own, it too. Does. You know what I mean? So it, luckily, there's kind of a, an ability to transcend that barrier, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, but before we do, I want to actually just unpack an experience of yours from an international show. What is one that really stands out to you? It could be the first one. It could just be one early in your career that really set the standard for you for, oh, wow, this is what it takes to set an international event to make sure everything runs smoothly um, and, you know, really, really put it in perspective for you. Well, one of the ones that comes to mind uh, is is kind of a little bit unique. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to be able to work with uh, the American Society of Travel Agents World Congress for about 16 years. And we would take anywhere from three to 7,000 travel agents to a different country every year. And that was back in the day where the, the only way to really travel was through a travel agent. The airlines paid commissions. You know, the travel agents would uh, you know, provide the hard copy tickets, and that's the way that you traveled. Yeah. Well, around the world, all the various countries wanted to promote tourism from the American side to come into their country. So they used to bid on these events, uh, almost like the Olympics, where the country would want to host this this big congress so uh, the, the particular one that we did in portugal um was was very unique we were in a very old uh you know several hundred year old facility which is which has its own challenges when you're in places like that from a technical side just the structural elements uh, how much can we actually hang in there you know how do we logistically get in there uh the shipping of, of things you know coming around mm-hmm. uh but, but for this particular one, uh, we had uh, uh, President Bush Sr. as a keynote speaker, and Barbara was there as well. Nice. We had uh, the Lisbon Symphony Orchestra. We had Marvin Hamlish. Uh, 
uh, a whole host of them. And the way that, that that particular show would work is that we would have two or three different show days that were uh, related to the American travel agents, and it was kind of an internalized thing. Mm-hmm. And then the beauty of it was there was always one evening show that was set aside that was done by the host committee. And because they wanted to get that tourism in that country, it would be their selection of who came as an artist and people that you worked with were the best of the best of the best of the best in that country, bar none. So we had the opportunity of of, uh, working collaboratively with them to design systems that would be easily uh, changed out as necessary to allow them to do their show. And we didn't try to, to teach them things the way that we would do it, but rather we would listen and uh, see how they did it and learn. And it was kind of a fun experience for us to do. But uh, when I was growing up as a kid, I used to do a lot of uh, different things all the time during the summer. And, mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time on, on a farm. We had a 750-acre farm, typically 435 head of cattle, uh, 50 horses, 16 Great Danes. Uh, I used to do all the maintenance for the Atlanta polo fields, et cetera. Wow. And I found myself, uh, you know, a lot of times just me and the animals where language wasn't, wasn't an opportunity to, to actually talk. True. And what I learned along the way was um, most of us are born with two eyes, two ears, and one mouth. And if we use them in those perspectives, then it's amazing how wide your peripheral vision can become. Mm-hmm. And I find when I'm doing international shows that I, I tend to look and listen uh, much, much more than I do try to actually speak. And I found that to be very empowering, and, and, and it's just amazing the little things that you pick up along the way, you know, to do. Right. But, uh, you know, it, it's doing a show and, and, and putting things together has, has kind of a, a rhythm to it. And when you go and do, which is very important, your, your, your actual site visit, and you go in there, you immerse yourself in the environment, and you have to figure out where that metronome value is. So you have an American client that is used to a right now kind of world, and you have to go into this other world and figure out what's going on. So if you use the, the theory I was just talking about to understand, then everything kind of f- f- falls into like a metronome, mm-hmm. and you can see what the rhythm is. As you mentioned before, I do enjoy smoking a cigar. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I try to do is that I will find the employee break area wherever I am. Mm-hmm. And when I'm finished with my clients, I'll go and just sit down there and I'll light a cigar up. And I'll just sit there quietly, just another guy dressed in black sitting there. And you can kind of see and feel the tempo of how the people react. You'll see the lead person with his clipboard and his radio, and you'll hear some, some desperate call come. Does, does he put his cigarette out and go right to it, or do they laugh and do they sit there? So that, that kind of sets that, that whole metronome for me, which is important later on when you're doing the design process. Hmm. So, so there's, there's real power in people watching sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You have to develop a sixth sense for mm-hmm. it because ultimately those are the same people that are going to be empowering you yeah. when you're on site. So, so you have to understand and kind of get that sense. And the way that I do it is once we have the main models put together and the main design part put together, we do our site visit, we, we, we go and we suck in all this information and just kind of let it just kind of soak in the back of our head. Mm-hmm. Typically for me, it'll be late in the evening when I'm back home and the, the phones have died, the emails have died, and typically I'm in my night clothes with my cat in my lap and I start to work on my on-site schedule, which is really how everything comes together. Yeah. Once you have the design, you know where you're going, you know what your time is. And, and during the course of writing that, 
that metronome value that I understood when I was there comes back and I, and I hear that meter going like this. And so I know that when I'm visualizing every hour, every minute, every second of every day of load in, what department, I know who my players are, I know how long it's going to take them to do it, I understand what the challenges are, I let it swirl around in my head like a three-dimensional chess game, mm-hmm. and I visualize it all the way through, and then I figure out if I offset this team here a little bit, I can I can get these guys going, and they won't be waiting on these people to do this thing. There are places internationally where people pray many times a day, so don't fight it, design it into your schedule. Right. Again, it's all about empowerment, it's all about respect with people. And once you put that together, you reach out to your vendors there, and you don't tell them this is what we're doing. You approach them differently, and you say, here's what we're thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, please look at this and, and, and tell me, you know, do we need to make a modification? You know, how would you approach it? Because sometimes they use bamboo for scaffold instead of steel. Yeah. So you can't come in as some hard, you know, hard-line person. You have to empower and when you do that, it shows respect, which is one of the universal things that people need to do with each other to get along. Right. And, well, and, and if, if we you do. set that standard, then your clients are going to be probably more open to the flexibility of, of an international show, which is just the, the, the truth of it. There's a lot of flux and things change on the fly. Absolutely. You, yeah. you basically get you know, people in, on your team. You just have to expand your team. And, you know, there's, there's complications along the way because you're bringing high-end technicians from your end in, and they're kind of like thoroughbred horses. And, you know, you have, they're very high-strung, and, uh, you know, the difference is a big broodmare will kick you, you'll break some bones. A thoroughbred kicks you, will put his foot right through you. So you have to <laughs> mitigate those guys and say, look, it's okay that they don't use connectors here. It's going to sound fine. Mm-hmm. I know that's the way you do it. So you, you kind of have to wedge yourself in the middle and kind of keep things divided. But moving it forward to the end goal. Right. That's really the key. And in Portugal, we did just that uh, to the point where during the time that we were there, it, it actually rained while we were there, which turned out to be a really good thing to know because the curved nature of that ceiling up there, it was absolutely deafening on the inside of the hall. Right. Now we had, the you know, President Bush was going to be our keynote, plus we had all this going on. So once we finished all the design components, we had all the weight loads, calculations, and everything done, I suggested that uh, we carpet the roof of the building. Hmm. And how did that go? It went great. Yeah. They have a very thin carpet there. They actually were able to put it up there in a way that from the outside you couldn't see. It didn't attract the beauty of the the, building. Right. But when it did rain during our show, it knocked 50% of the sound out. Wow. You could still hear President Bush. It's those little things. It's just those little things like that that you have to do for your client. Yeah. I love it. Thinking on the fly. Mm -hmm. So... I think the diversity of an international show is one of the most exciting parts, also one of the most challenging parts. We've sort of already touched on it, but let's dig in a little more to the exciting aspects of it. Um, You know, I think with any sort of international project, it's that mix of perspectives and, um, you know, ability to draw from different experiences that really adds value. So I wanted to hear from you. How have you noticed AV teams from across the world handle live events differently? And what learning lessons did you pick up from other crews in different countries as you got more comfortable doing uh, live shows internationally? 
Well, like I, like I said earlier, there's a, there are teams of professionals that do exactly what we do around the world, you yeah. know, and really music kind of brought that into play. There's concerts that have happened. So you've always been able to find great sound and lighting around the world. Um, the way that they approach uh, things a lot of times is just different, and, and most of it's just, just nomenclature, you know, how they call it. You know, it's a kit rather than a system or whatever, so there's a little bit of a language barrier there. Uh, restrictions in terms of vehicle size, trucking, logistics, and things like that. Um, but, you know, you, you, you always find the, the artisans and the craftsmen within the group that you can learn from, and uh, some of the scenic uh, folks that we've had the chance to work with were just phenomenal the way that they would approach doing something uh we were in singapore doing a show and we we contracted a local company to do all the you know very simple flats on stage background type thing well they came out they pulled out a bunch of ladders they put the stuff together they actually took uh, like a sheetrock mud and actually mudded out the joints on where everything came together again and then all of a sudden there was a bunch of ladders and guys with these hair dryer blowers <laughs> fast rapidly drying the stuff and then they sanded it and then they skinned the fabric around the outside, and it was absolutely beautiful. There was no seams, there was no gaps, and it was just, you know, the way that their culture did it. And it right. was like, what are you doing? We're not building a building here. Right. But, but the end result was absolutely fantastic. And there's little gems like that that you can find from all over the world. Well, and obviously the diversity of the international show can also be a challenge. You mentioned the language barrier. Um even when you're speaking the same language, like you said, the terminology mm -hmm. sometimes can be different. But, I mean, the truth is, an international show, you're going to get multiple languages and not everyone is comfortable with your language, even if they can sort of maneuver their way around English. Perfect so, example on yeah. the show that we were just talking about. Uh, uh, one of the biggest challenges we had was um, our audio team that we partnered with was Swiss-German. The lighting team that we worked with was actually French, and we had a French-only speaking automated lighting programmer. The camera operators and spotlight operators were actually Portuguese. So O.C. O'Connell was our stage manager for that particular event, and his challenge was, was really vast because typically when a stage manager sets up a queue to call for a show, they'll say, you know, everyone stand by and go. Mm -hmm. And it's actually right then, a couple seconds later, something happens. Well, the complexity of the comm system, because we had layers of translation involved, he had to actually say the go word 10, 12 seconds before it actually happened. Right. And so he had to figure out that rhythm himself and just throw the Hail Mary out there because sometimes you, you, you change things on a dime at the last second. So, you know, that was a, a very complicated thing. But at the end of the day, you would never know it because it actually executed perfectly. Right. And that's how we were able to overcome that. But it was a real challenge for him now. Yeah. Well, I guess it helps that if everyone at the show at least has the same general standard of excellence, right, they're going to all do their best to make it past that language barrier. So it's not like only Alford Media's team is having to maneuver around the difference in language. Like everyone is having to deal with that issue. And yes. everyone knows that regardless, they need to deliver a good show like mm -hmm. they can't let that impede so um you know i think i think that just goes back to i don't know exuding that general excellence when you're at that and show empowering them with the things that are in their language yeah. like, like we talked about the units between metric and imperial right you know give them what they need to do a great job that's what they want to do for you yeah the little things help it is yeah so the literal planning complexities of an international show can be difficult as well i mean from the very basics of differing time zones and having to lay in calls and emails with people across the world to just difference in creative ideas and making sure that 
all the crews are on the same page and feel invested in the show, but also that the client understands, you know, what they're getting out of their event and that it's up to their specifications. So what aspects of planning the live show would you say are the most difficult to coordinate with teams across the globe? And how did you personally stay on top of those creative differences and logistical issues? Well, yeah, every every show is 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 unique, and there are shows that 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 come down the line that actually have a tremendous amount of logistical uh, challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did one uh, for Geis for the GE Mark Makers uh, several years ago, uh, and we we rented the uh, the luxury cruise liner that they used in the movie Speed Two, <laughs> yeah, with Sandra Bullock. Love it. We actually rented that ship for our client. So the challenge was. We had to go and embark in Barcelona and then load all of our stuff in there. And then we did uh, Barcelona, Nice, Saint-Tropez, and Monte Carlo. So we wound up going down the site visit down to Miami where the ship was in port to go and do a site evaluation of it. When we were there, we met a guy named Scotty who was the lead technician for the, for the actual ship. And we kind of went through what are the capabilities of your theater, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that we did was uh, we took careful note of all the things that actually didn't work. So we wrote down model numbers of equipment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and listened to him talk about it, the challenges of trying to get parts and pieces and so forth. So as, as the show developed, we wound up uh, uh, traveling over. Everything was shipped in from the states uh, of all the key ingredients. So we had to deal with the carnets, uh, with all the carnet foils, the shipping, et cetera. We get to Barcelona, and we load everything onto the ship, and we start to fit it out for the theater, which is part of what we did the show in. Mm-hmm. Well, the first half of the day we spent, we had brought the parts and pieces that he needed to to fix. Right. And the whole crew went and actually got his system back up to 100%, nice. which totally was, was the right thing to do. And it gave us the equipment that we could actually work with because now it worked. Right. So we were on the ship. We went to our next port, and that's where our, our clients wound up getting on the ship. So logistically, the challenge was this. We could only stay on the ship as a crew for that trip between uh, Barcelona and, uh, uh, I guess, Saint-Tropez it was. That little jump right there. After that, every morning we had to be tendered on the ship, and then we did our show event inside the theater on the ship, but then that evening we were tendered back off. So the production assistants actually took a vehicle with all of our luggage and everything in it, and they were driving the shoreline and checking us into the hotels. <laughs> and so we would be tendered off the ship. We would go to our hotel. Our, the, the, the room key would be right there at the front desk. We'd go. We'd open the door, and our suitcase would be sitting there. We'd sleep. We'd pack up. We'd leave our suitcase in the room. Five in the morning, we'd be tendered back on the ship, get everything going, do our morning session, and as we progressed all the way through. So logistically, that was an interesting challenge. Uh, Where it got really interesting was toward the end, once we got into the Monte Carlo, we actually had a off-site venue, the Hotel du Paris in Monte Carlo, that we had designed a a James Bond-themed evening uh, martini party, black tie for for the audience. So we hired Roger Moore, who lives not too far from there, and we got a convertible Bentley, and we hired some model Bond girls and so forth. And they came in, and and we had this whole James Bond-themed evening. Well, the musicians that were performing there were actually the World Classic Rockers, Hmm. which is all 14-year world touring experience, ex-members of Eagles, Toto, Genesis, etc. They were undercover that night because we had a whole other thing happening the next day. So we, we wind up loading in, doing the show, and we start our loadout late in the evening after the party. About the time we finished our loadout, we started to begin our load into the ship. 
So our final event was going to be a, a concert by the World Classic Rockers on the ship in port. So logistically, we wound up having to bring cranes in. We had to be set to go to sea just in case uh, people complained about the noise too much. Mm -hmm. So the challenge there was um, I wound up putting a uh, 26,500 kilo generator system up on the top deck, which, of course, this is a luxury cruise liner, so it's all teak wood. It's absolutely beautiful, and I love renting things. I hate buying them. Mm -hmm. So we had to lay down, you know, special protection there, cross-grain plywood. The crane dropped it in there. We're cabling. The stage area, we wound up designing a custom-built stage over the top of the hot tubs in the middle of the ship. That was the only place that we could kind of make it work. Sure. So we had to fabricate and build and construct all of this. Uh, all of the lighting was very unusual. Uh, we wound up with two vertical big trusses with an H component in the middle that we were able to take carpet pieces and wrap uh, with material to make sure it didn't hurt anything. And then we could kind of tie it off and secure it on each of the levels of the ship on the inside. We put the monitor world in the Munstering station on the side, and we had the lighting designer up on the top part near the left of the smokestack on top. So we wind up working all day. Now, so this is into day two without sleep. We go in there, put the whole thing together, and we get into the event. So we had a couple of different bands that were doing that. uh, And the unique challenge, you know, became... um, At the very end of this, uh, the show was ending at 10 o'clock p.m. We had to be untied by midnight from the Port Authority there because they go home at midnight, and all of our clients' tickets were out of Nice the next day. So here we wow. are in this unique little pickle that, yeah. you know, at the very end. So the, so the president of, of the group that we were doing the show for gets up there and says, ladies and gentlemen, you know, we have a very unique opportunity here. We all have flights out of Nice tomorrow, and these ladies and gentlemen need to get this stuff out of here so we can be untied by midnight. So please step up into the balconies. You're welcome to watch, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had, we had designed uh, with everyone exactly how things were going to work. And we had a backup plan in case we couldn't. We had to stop, secure everything go to Nice, and then continue the loadout from Nice if we had to do that. So it was like, okay, you ready? Five, four, three, two, one, go. At that point, you've got the crane coming in, generator coming apart. The only way to get cases in was cargo nets. Mm -hmm. So people were packing their stuff up, getting it in the cargo nets. We're flying it out. Uh, French language, we had about four languages going right then. Mm Stuff is going out like crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember our, our graphics person, Emil Walski, grabbing cases and running down the stairs to take it off, you know. So we had a whole crew shoreside that was taking big chunk pieces that we could drop down to them to pack up later on. We just simply had to get it off the ship in that time frame. Wow. So we ripped the whole thing apart, and we're down to the last second. We're 15 minutes before midnight, and all of a sudden I've got one more cargo net that needs to go. So I saw the captain of the ship over by the Munster station. I said, Captain, I said, do you have starboard maneuvering jets on this vessel? He's like, yes, I do. And I said, do you think it's possible that you could fire those up and keep us pressed against the shore so that the, so that the, the shore crew can untie us mm-hmm. and we can get this last load off? He's like, absolutely. So he reaches in, he pulls his key out from inside his shirt and opens up his con- control station at the Munster area, fires the jets up. You know, the last stuff is flying off. And all of a sudden... We're finished. And the president of Geist that was there came out, stood in the middle, and just looked at all of his people on the balconies and says, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you saw what I just saw, but these men and women just showed you how to do everything we've talked about in our general session meetings, about overcoming language, overcoming diversities, getting to the end, 
getting everything done on time. Yeah. Whatever you have to do to make it work. Staying mission-oriented. And, and we yeah. wound up getting a standing ovation by the six- and seven-digit salespeople, top salespeople wow. of that company, which was, which was great. You know, it was just awesome that they finally embraced it. So now, me and Tim Williamson, our lighting designer, and Scotty are, are standing there, uh, and we're sailing. And now, technically, the two of us are stowaways. <laughs> but it was a good thing. Yeah. Because you can imagine in a, in a strike that quick, uh, there was so much debris and stuff around. And we had taken those hot tubs away from our client. And this was their last voyage that they were going to be able to enjoy those hot tubs at night. Mm-hmm. So Tim and I and Scotty wound up bagging up 22 con- construction bags of trash. And then we wound up having to carry that to the stern of the ship where all the trash was. So about the time we finished that up, we finally landed in Nice. Well, that was now how many days without sleep? Three, okay, four, so yeah, right. <laughs> we had to get off the ship. We had to get all of the shipping containers finalized, had to get all the carnets, had to get all that stuff done. We got that finished. Then I had to go and meet with each of the vendors uh, and sign off the final paperwork and so forth. And finally got to the point where I could go and get on my plane. And it was the first time in my career that I've gotten on a plane in Nice and sat in a seat and never woke up until the flight attendant woke me up when we landed in the United States. I didn't even have a glass of water. I was so tired, but Neither those are sometimes the logistics that that you have to do. Yeah, and uh, you know, again, well, probably stuff that you never planned that you were going to have to do while you were no, there. No, careful yeah. planning up front when you're on show site. It's kind of like a paint by numbers game. Mm-hmm. When you've been in the in your in your comfortable place designing things, when you're on show site, you connect your own dots. And if you're working twenty hour days back to back to back, trust your own plan until you have to deviate from it. Yeah. And that's really all we do on show site. We're like firefighters. And if something happens, we kind of make a subtle change here or there. But when in doubt, follow your own plan. Right. Well, I mean, as much as the plan is important, it almost sounds like more importantly was being able to not follow your own plan. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think that is the trick for any show of this magnitude or when you're in an environment you don't understand or you aren't familiar with is – yeah, you should do planning, obviously. You know, don't skip the pre-production step. But as the event is going, you know, sometimes you're going to have to bag 20 bags of trash, right? Sometimes you're going to have to make a, a key flip decision and you're going to have to race off the ship. Mm-hmm. You're going to have, you know, whatever. Something yeah. totally unexpected. And it's basically how you handle yourself in that mm-hmm. situation, I think, really goes to show what kind of professional you are in yeah. the industry. There's, right? a simple, yeah. there, there, there's a simple thing that I think about. What is a chiropractor, and what does he do? He makes my back feel great. <laughs> a, chiropractor, a chiropractor will evaluate and look at it. And all at the end of the day that they want to do is to allow things to be what they are naturally. Right. They do subtle subluxations, just a little nudge here, a little bump there, and everything is back in alignment the way it's supposed to be naturally. Right. And that's the way that we approach shows. It's just a, on site. It's just a little nudge here, a little nudge there. You allow it to be what you've determined it, it should be naturally. Right. Love it. So to kind of start to wrap things up, we've gotten a lot of perspective from you as a professional and kind of advice for the AV professional on how to handle the live show. What about for the client, the one that you know, has never been to a live show before? You're sort of helping usher them to that event and make sure they have a great event what's some best practices or tips you would give them to get in the right mindset for an international show and what to expect? Well, the secret is to transition and make things anywhere you travel in the world as similar and familiar to them as possible. 
they have a lot of anxiety because they've just never done it before. Sure. And they, they just have this, this you know, media-filtered kind of, you know, oh, my God, we're going where right. type thing. So what you want to do is you want to let the air out of that balloon by putting them back and letting them partner with you and, and, and be able to kind of hold their hand and, and, and just let them react to you and talk to you and speak to you the way that they do when you're there. And again, you become the shock absorber for the, for the bumps that are on the way. So once you start to put it in a familiar space where they are, then, then they start to relax a little bit. They start to have success. As you start to get into the rehearsing process, everything seems as normal as, as it could be. But, you know, when you step outside and you look, you happen to be looking at sailboats in a beautiful river somewhere in the world as opposed to a trash dumpster. Right. You know, so, so once you get them in that comfort level and, and give them the same experience at the end of the day and, and, and have them feel good and comfortable, that's, that's the real key is that we'll, we'll take the headshots for them. Right. You know, and, and, and that's the way it should be. So we started this conversation by talking about the Burgundy, talking about Alford Media's culture and sort of what you do at a live event. So to to really wrap things up, tie it all in a neat bow, how does Alford bring that Burgundy culture to international shows? You know, what what does that mean for the international show? Well, Daniel, it's uh, that's kind of all we've really talked about here, Mm -hmm. honestly. Yeah. Everything, everything that we've been discussing is really what our culture is about and one of the things that makes us uniquely a, a little bit different. And, you know, it's, it's just caring about people. It's, it's caring about the show. It's, it's about doing it as a career. This isn't a job. It's a career. It's passionate. You're, you're creating this, this child, this, this life, and it's just amazing to be a part of that ride. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Backstage Pass. Um, I really enjoyed getting to hear your stories, uh, detailing every little step of an international event. I mean, I never could have expected all the twists and turns that you were going to have to deal with, but you handled them with grace. And I think that's that's the big key here, right, is, yeah, you're going to have to deal with language barriers. You're going to have to deal with creative differences and, um, you know, unfamiliar environments. But whether you're a client or whether you're an AV professional, Coming out on top of an international show, I think just comes down to flexibility and comes down to an open mind and comes down to confidence and being, you know, trusting in your process and trusting that even though it's a different scenario, at the end of the day, it's kind of the same, you know what I mean? And just having that faith. So thank you so much again for joining us, Eric. It really was a pleasure getting to chat. Well, thanks for having me, Daniel. I enjoyed it. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Backstage Pass. And if you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to alfordmedia.com or you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.